Okay, if you would, turn to the book of Genesis. Over the next three and a half, four minutes, I am going to read selectively portions of Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. Selectively, for time's sake. Starting with Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And so Noah went out of the ark and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish in the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives 
shall be food for you. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast who kills a man. I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, because God made man in his own image. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, fearful word. Let's pray. Father, may we taste of your holiness in this story. And may every soul in here taste and experience your mercy in the midst of it. Your glorious, loving, kind-hearted, ark-building mercy. So to that end, help me. Help me proclaim your gospel to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is week 12 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. And just again, just want to remind us, keep in mind, we're talking about history, we're talking about linear, we're talking about redemption and God's doing one thing after another from our perspective that has a beginning and has an end. And He doesn't do a beginning without the end totally in mind. And everything in between, there is a goal. It's like a highway, Interstate 40. We've driven this so many times, Texas and back. So Interstate 40, when they start building that in Barstow, and they're going to end up in Amarillo, Texas, and continue on, when they start, they know the end. They know they're going through Flagstaff and Winslow and Albuquerque. It's not like, oh, just do one thing, and we're, what are we going to do tomorrow? I don't know. The end is in mind at the beginning, and so with God. Redemptive history is like a highway. Its construction is under the sovereign providential hand of the Creator. And His history is going somewhere. He appointed a goal. And then on the way of building the highway, nothing is insignificant or purposeless. And so if Jesus Christ coming 2,000 years ago in human history, if He is the center of all history, of all meaning, 
then we should understand everything that went before Him was pointing to Him. What we will see this morning in the covenant with Noah, it is with Christ in mind. With the covenant of Abraham, of Moses, the one He made with David, everything is a highway pointing to Christ in the preaching of the Gospel. And so as we come to this story today, Noah's Ark and the flood is not a children's story. It is one of the most terrifying, tragic stories of God's wrath in all the Bible. So, here's my goal. I think as we read this story, there are these three things at least that we are meant to grasp in the story. We're meant to see them. First, we're meant to see the wickedness of humanity. All of us. How horrendous, how, how, how evil our hearts are continuously. Secondly, we are meant to see Though God is patient and has been up to this point since the fall, His patience does come to an end. And He will judge the unrepentant. And thirdly, nevertheless, through God's willing demonstration of His judgment, even in this story we see His goal of creation remains. He will have for Himself a people. The line of Seth will be preserved. Redemption, sinners, turning and glorifying His name through their joyful faith and repentance will happen. So those are the three things we're going to look at. So first, is that since the fall, the human heart is very wicked by its nature. It is steeped in dishonoring sin. After the fall, Adam blamed his wife. Cain killed, murdered his brother Abel. Lamech, one of Cain's descendants down the road, kills a boy for wounding him and he becomes a bigamist and he writes a song boasting about killing that boy. And then when we turn to chapter 6, verse 5, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And verse 11 shows that all of this inward evil then was breaking out in action toward each other. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, 
And behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so the flood that God brought upon the earth in killing every human being except those eight, it is there to demonstrate the gravity of sin and to demonstrate the holiness of His judgment and that it's just. The universality of human sin is placarded in the story. And God's perfect, holy, just response is shown clearly. That's one of the main purposes of this story. The purpose of this story is not, look at Noah. Isn't he great? So I'll kill all the other sinners and then the humanity will be terrific again because we got Noah. No. Noah was a sinner. After the flood, you read in chapter 8, verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now why would he even have to say that? Because man is just as sinful and it's going to happen again and again. Watch what he says. For the Intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is after the flood. So God is clear that original sin in Noah and his sons and their wives and their children, original sin inherited from Adam remains. So don't make the mistake that, hey, there's Noah and God's got a nice fresh start with this sin-free population. It's not it. Actually, in chapter 6, verse 8 of Genesis, it makes it clear the reason that Noah was spared was because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Favor or grace. Which at its core, put together last week's sermon, means there's something in that sinful man, Noah, that agreed with God about the evil sinfulness of his own heart, and that therefore turned from acting it out and was resisting it and was trusting the Lord and His Word. And that was the line of Seth. God's mercy of new birth. He found grace. And God called him righteous and blameless. See, in the Old Testament, blameless does not mean sinless. Ever. When he's talking about man. He's blameless. Really? Read the words that are spoken about David sometimes. Sinless? No. Blameless means sinners where something has changed in their heart toward God, yet they remain sinners. They remain with this innate disposition towards sin, but they also now have a new disposition towards a hatred for their sin in their disposition. Oh God, deliver me from this body. Of death. Same thing with he was a righteous man. It doesn't mean a sinless 
man. It means a person who hates their sin and turns from their sin and repents and pursues trusting God and His Word. And this is confirmed about Noah in the New Testament in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. We read, By faith, trust, something in his heart towards God, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Not inherent within Noah. Granted to him by imputation because of faith. Noah was not an exception to the rule of the universality of sin. He had experienced what we saw last week. The Old Testament calls circumcision of the heart. The New Testament calls it new birth. He was of the line of Seth. He was like Abel and like Enoch. And so that new birth produces what it always produces. A heart that trusts the Word of the Lord. And thus he built an ark. Evidence. He's born again. He has faith. And it's imputed to him is righteousness. And so, the doctrine of sin after the flood stands. And that's the first lesson of this text. So after the flood, as before, apart from regeneration, apart from new birth, which produces in that person their willingness. I love you. I believe in you, God. I trust your word. Oh, help me. That's new birth. Apart from that, every human soul to this day and in this room is the way the text says they, every one of their intention, of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil. Continually. And that brings us to the second lesson. God's patience does come to an end. And here, when it does, He actively destroys unrepentant sinners. Chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 7, we read, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, because I am sorry that I have made them. And in verse 13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Because the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And in verse 17, God says that His wrath against man will come by water. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth 
to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then it started to rain hundred years down the road. And it didn't stop. Till the earth was covered with water and there was a boat floating on top. And then we read these sobering words from Genesis 7 verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, and livestock, and beasts, and swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Why? Because the point is it's clear. God hates sin. And He punishes unrepentant sinners. And when Jesus finally comes thousands of years later, He teaches the same thing. But even a little bit more stark than that. When He said in Matthew 18, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away because it's better for you to enter life crippled, lame, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. So God's flood that He brought in human history and Genesis records, and pretty much every civilization has a flood story. Something happened there. His flood of judgment and His very Son teach the same lesson. God hates sin and He punishes unrepentant sinners with unspeakable judgment. And that truth is to be carried by the apostles and their disciples and the church down through the centuries. We don't just go with, there was a man, Jesus, he died on a cross and was raised from the dead. Yes! But, God wanted a book written first so that with that message, there comes a book from Genesis to Malachi the way we structure it. And this story, therefore, is gospel-laden. Which there is no gospel unless people understand the gravity of sin and a judgment that is to come. Get on the ark. Get on the ark. 
of Jesus is the gospel. Which brings us to the third glorious, hopeful lesson of this story. God has not in the judgment of the world and killing all mankind on it, He has not abandoned His purpose in redemptive history. He has preserved the line of Seth. The seed of the woman will remain. He did it through preserving one righteous man and seven with him. And then he gives them, after the ark comes to rest, the command, very much like he gave to Adam back in chapter 1. In chapter 9, verse 1, we read, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in verse 7, he repeats it. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. And so here's God after the flood, ready to start with a new Adam, so to speak. This is different. This is not starting sinless, and this is not starting in the Garden of Eden. And so as the text goes on, this new Adam is going to have to deal with three real threats. I mean, we've already seen it in the story from the Canaanite line and the Seth line, and the Seth line starts to intermarry down the road, and the earth is becoming more and more corrupt until the Seth line is almost obliterated. And there's Noah, and God preserves it. Is that how He's going to continue to do it? No. And so we see in the story there are three threats. One is from animals. God will give a provision. One is from men. Evil men is a threat to the line of righteous people. And the third threat is from God Himself. So God makes provisions in the text to protect the life of man in this new world where sin and corruption will again soon abound. We see the first one there in chapter 9, verses 2 to 3. He gives to, to mankind now these new rights over animals so that they will not, in a sense, be threatened their life be threatened. Read it. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. Noah and his sons, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And so God now supports man in his mission to fill all the earth, ultimately with his goal, God's goal, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God by removing the threat of wild beasts. 
And man now has the right to put the dread over them. And what we see in human history is, for the most part, in these civilized countries, there are no longer nomads. They figure out how to gather together. Let's get by water. We'll farm animals and we'll farm vegetables. And there's a protection from it. And then God makes provision, secondly, to restrain murder. Right there in chapter 9, verses 5 to 6. And in doing it, and what we're going to read here is not a description. That's the way it's going to be. This is a command. And there's this implicit also command that governments in that little village or a bigger city or an empire, governments will be structured. And he foundationally gives this law. And for your lifeblood, it's his way of saying, when a man is murdered, or woman, or child, human being, for your lifeblood or killed, I will require a reckoning from every beast. And you'll see this in Moses. Doesn't matter, the, the, the animal's not, doesn't have a, 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 a moral. Uh, What's the word I want? Culpability in it. It's an animal. It's not a human being. But nevertheless, because of what we will see, the preciousness of the image of God, that animal needs to be killed because it killed a human being. And this is what he's saying here. And he says, I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made human beings in his own image. That's why. I don't know if I've ever ran into, I just don't, I'm just, I'm just going to be careful, I don't know if I've ever personally have run into what I would call a real stickler for biblical text. A, a, an evangelical believing the gospel of Jesus Christ who on the issue of killing babies in the womb is not pro-life. Okay, why is that? We have a term for it. We call it sanctity of life. We don't mean... We mean sanctity of human life. That's what makes millions of us horrified at the killing of babies in a womb. And that is the same foundation of killing other human beings. Sanctity of human life. You murder an innocent. First degree, God commands that person must be put to death to uphold the sanctity of human life. See, before the flood, if you remember, Cain murdered, and God said, Don't kill him. Not only that, sevenfold come upon you, you find Cain and you kill him. Floods happened. 
And now God makes provision for murder to at least be partly restrained in the dignity and the sanctity and the image of God in humanity to be upheld. He makes murder a capital offense. Remember, God's purpose is to have enmity between the regenerate and the unregenerate going through history in order to fill the earth with His glory. And the murderer's execution by the hands, not of God directly, but by the hands of government, men, human beings, that becomes part of God's purpose in the preservation of human life. And that power to punish and to execute the hands of government is going to provide that particularly for the godly line until it's time down to the end. When you come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 clearly agrees with this and establishes this, that God has even made the Roman Empire. Wait, that's an imperfect empire. Yeah, every government's imperfect. But he has made the government his servant, particularly with the power to put to death murderers, the power of the sword to imprison against people's will when they do evil. And then thirdly, God makes... A covenant with Noah. Think about it. When you think about this covenant, why? Why does he make this covenant? Because there's a threat to humanity. Not only from animals. Not only from other human beings. But there is a threat threat from God. Look what he just did. He wiped everybody out. So how is the earth going to be filled with his glory? How is it going to be filled with God worshipers when sin is still here and it will abound if God just keeps wiping it out? In judgment, and you're back down to eight again and again. And so, to protect humanity against this threat, he makes a covenant with Noah in chapter 9, verse 11, says, saying, I establish my covenant with you. Here it is that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God makes a covenant, a promise. He says, I swear to God, I'm binding myself to it, I won't do this. And the promise is stated Again, in a positive way, in chapter 8, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. 
In other words, I give to you, Noah, and your three sons, and all humanity, that sign in the sky called the rainbow, I give to you protection from the animals, from each other in your evil doing, and in my covenant promise, I give you protection from me. I will now continue to uphold the natural world processes by which you depend. Winter and summer and day and night and seed time and harvest and not all being wiped out with the flood. And I will uphold it and preserve it. As long as the world lasts. Because there's another end that won't be a water flood. It's not a children's story. So what we've seen here is that the wickedness of humanity by our nature is much deeper than we ever could imagine. When you ignore God and who He is, you can seem high and mighty in your own sight. If we get a smidgen of His holiness, we will collapse to the ground in fear. Secondly, we have seen God hates sin. And He has demonstrated in history and will again show His patience eventually has an end. And judgment will fall. And we have seen He does not give up on His glorious purpose of redemption, of salvation, of building an ark, of having for Himself from Noah on, a people. And from Christ on, a people who are regenerate. And those who remain unregenerate. So remember the highway analogy? As he started in Barstow with creation, now he's somewhere at the border of the Colorado River with Noah. In doing what we saw, Christ is always as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There's the goal. And in the context of redemptive history, after the flood, it's clear sin is just as much as a, of a problem as it was before. The flood of judgment didn't eradicate sin or sinfulness. It demonstrated God's wrath and His mercy with the ark. And He does this as redemptive history is unfolding. And that's why after Christ comes, the New Testament looks back at this story, sees Gospel all over it. In 2 Peter, Chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, we read, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. 
And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And the ark, that big boat that God commanded Noah to build, the New Testament writers see that as a foreshadowing of the salvation that is in Christ. This is how Peter wrote it in 1 Peter 3, 20-21. They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus in His earthly ministry sees in the flood the example of a final, eternal judgment. In Matthew 24, our Lord said, But concerning that day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be in the future the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days... Before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be my second coming. Noah's Ark and the Flood story is not a children's story. It's a teenager's story. That means 11 on up. It's a young adult's story. It's an adult's story. They were eating. Drinking, partying, being utterly worldly, in love with the world, even if they have religious tags. There's time. I'm young. I can sow some wild oats with my human sexual nature. There's time. 
to ignore the truth. And play. Don't be one. If you made it all the way to 74, talking to us older people, I ain't 74 yet. Don't throw it away. Feel the lessons from this story. Remember in chapter 3, verse 15, God's clear about what He's doing. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring, the unregenerate, and her offspring, the born again. And He did. And then the whole earth became His offspring. And almost got wiped out except for Noah. But God wouldn't have it. And He preserved it. He will always have His people. Be one. So in a nutshell, hear the Gospel story in the flood. Every one of us in this room, our sin is great. Do not ever think as you contemplate the horror of the flood and the drowning of all humanity on earth that you or I deserved anything less. We did. Simply because we are guilty. Secondly, God hates that sin. And depending whether you're on the ark right now or not, if you're not, His patience toward you will come to an end. Don't be found outside the ark. Why? Because the ark has come. Christ has come. Jesus, God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity became a human being. Not to sweep our sin that deserves the flood eternally under the rug, but to absorb the penalty and be killed in the flood Himself so that all who are safely in the ark don't have to. To say it in the words of Genesis 3.15, the seed, singular of the woman, has come. And He crushed the head of the serpent on our behalf. And this is God's glorious mercy to all, saying, come. There's more room 
than just eight. Come, flee to the ark of Christ. Flee to the mercy and the gift of eternal happiness and joy. Don't sell it for fleeting pleasures of sin. Drink of it. And so, believer now, believer, know this. Whether you have three more years on this earth or 78, no matter what we are experiencing down here in time and space, they bring tears and it's, they should. And they bring joy and you should. But in all of it, you're on the ark. There are dead bodies everywhere. On the water under you. And you're not one. Don't forget it. Oh, there's a context. There's a context for everything we experience as believers. There's a way, therefore, as Paul would say, to weep yet always rejoice. To re yes, I weep at this. I'm frustrated at that. Help me, oh God. Yes, use David. And at the same time, I'm doing that while I'm on the ark. This is the gospel. This is good. Therefore, oh, let us continue to rejoice in our lives, to not forget, to not push to the side, to not let be blurred the reality of salvation in Jesus in our daily lives. Come. Oh, Father, you are good. Your grace your mercy towards sinners like Noah and his family. Your mercy to David. Your mercy to Paul. A chief of sinners. A persecutor of the church. Your mercy to the likes of us. <coughs> it's so good. Oh, Father, we beg You. We are so needy every day to have You rise up and cause us to yearn more for You. We ask it, Father, to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.